Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast. Science, people, human behavior, creativity, learning more, expanding our framework, learning about the world that we are in. On this episode, I have both our guest and my co-host here. My co-host, Rebecca Faith Lawson. Hello. You have seen her on previous programs. And our guest today, author of Wrong, Dr. Danigal Young of the University of Delaware. Danigal, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Very glad to have you on. You've written a book called Wrong. Also, your background, there's a connection here of Pennsylvania to both of you. Can you tell us about Pennsylvania and your time there and what you think of when you think of Pennsylvania? Obviously, the Eagles. Um, so I actually, I, I'm from New Hampshire, and I grew up in um, like the suburbs, and my folks still live up in the mountains of New Hampshire. But I moved to Philly in 1999 to go to graduate school, and I went to Penn and lived in Philly and then moved just outside of Philadelphia um, when our, we were, you know, had our family. So I still live just outside of Philly. I live in South Jersey. And I teach at the University of Delaware. So, it, I mean, all the states are kind of small. So they're very traversable. So, yeah, a lot of people think I live in Delaware and they're saddened to learn, no, I teach there, but I live in Jersey, you know. That's cool. What is it like teaching at the University of Delaware? I love it. I love it. First of all, campus is absolutely gorgeous. It's stunning. It's it's made to look almost like a like a southern university, like like UVA. Um, has a beautiful big green, gorgeous like red brick buildings. But even better, the students are probably the nicest students that I've ever taught. That's no shade against other students at other universities, but there's something kind of magical about the students there and whenever I have guest speakers and other friends where faculty members come and give lectures they're always like what that they're so nice here like students hold doors and they'll come up after class and be like thanks for a great lecture it's like it's magic it's like magical yeah do you think that there is an influence on those students that maybe is unique to them as opposed to other schools don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like a self-selection thing that maybe really nice kids like go there. I don't know what it is. Um, I've tried to figure it out. I actually have no idea. I don't know. But I think that there's a lot of students who are very smart and maybe opted to go to a state school instead of going to like a, like a more expensive school. And I, I don't know, they're just yeah, they're just, they're just, they're nice. And they're very engaged. Like my students, when they email me, you should see these email signatures. It's like, you know, Joe Smith, you know, president of Kappa Delta Alpha, director of the this, Blue Hen ambassador, orientation leader. It's like his signature is like longer than, than like the email. You know, yeah, it's fun. Right, it's so fun they're place. just, mm -hmm. They're very like, it seems involved in their school then doing different things very. and community oriented maybe. And yeah, hugely, hugely. Yeah. A lot of school spirit. Community oriented nature is important. And that's one of the three C's that comes up in the book. And to describe the book, it is wrong. How media politics and identity 
drive our appetite for misinformation. And the, t the title is pretty strong on wrong, as opposed to some other, it's a very punchy word, why wrong as the main boom of the book. Well, thanks. I mean, it is punchy. And when I thought of it, I was like, this is punchy and I like it. And it's kind of in your face. It's a little provocative. It's a little, it's a little aggressive, uh, but I like that because, you know, there's a whole lot of folks who, you know, good friends of mine who are in the space of political communication, politics and media, studying technology and studying misinformation. And what there's not as much of is folks studying, instead of the, the supply of mis and disinformation, there is less focus on what I think of as the demand side of for misinformation, which is, it's not that we demand misinformation, but that we are attracted to information that's demonstrably false a lot of times because it satisfies these other needs. And so this book is really not a consideration just of misinformation, but rather a consideration of wrongness like the quality on the part of individuals that when they believe information that's empirically false. And it's not because they're dumb. And a lot of times it's not because they're uninformed. Often it's because they are, they're misinformed or they are driven by, by these psychological needs that aren't even about being empirically accurate. Like you mentioned, that the C of community. So the book is about how these these three C's really drive how it is that we uh, think about the world around us, and they are comprehension, control, and community. So people are driven to feel like they comprehend or understand what the heck's going on, right? That that helps us feel like a little more certain. We also feel like we want to feel that we have control. Now, that's not necessarily the same as actually having control, but we want to feel like we have power and agency and control. And thirdly is community. And that's probably the one that shapes everything, right? We want to feel that we are part of a social group and that we're a good member of that group. We want to feel like we are engaging with our group and connecting with them the way that the good members of the group connect with each other. So those are the three things. And, and because those are the things that drive how we engage with the world, rather than needing to be empirically accurate, a lot of times we end up being wrong. Hmm. Now, for those three C's in the book, you have differentiated how that comes across to the two ends of the political spectrum in the United States. How would you relate how each side handles those three C's on their own end? So this is where, you know, there's an entire chapter dedicated to the story of the social identity and the role of social identity in U.S. politics, which, you know, 40 years ago, the concept of social identity theory didn't resonate as much with political scientists, mainly because 40, 50 years ago, our political parties were a lot more heterogeneous on a lot of different dimensions. So you would have Republicans who were kind of liberal and Republicans who were moderate and conservative. You would have Democrats who were kind of conservative and some who were liberal and moderate. You also had a lot more socio-demographic mix in the parties. 
So maybe you had evangelical Christians who identified as Democrats. You had you also had folks who lived in rural areas who identified as Democrats. Now, obviously, those individuals still exist, but political scientists have documented how the two parties makeup has completely changed such that the Republican Party has become really homogenous. There's a lot of sameness in their socio-demographics with the Republican Party becoming increasingly like white, rural, evangelical Christian and culturally conservative. Whereas the Democratic Party has become more ethnically and racially diverse, liberal, urban and suburban, and in a little rural, like, so Ezra Klein, the um, journalist talked about it this way, whereas the Republicans have turned into the party of sameness, the Democrats have become the party of, of difference, right? And that has really huge implications for our social psychology, because social identity or how we think of ourselves as part of a team is something that is usually pretty flexible, like, like, Sometimes I might think of myself as a PTA mom. Sometimes I might think of myself as a faculty member. Sometimes I might think of myself as someone from New Hampshire. But when my social identity fits really well with what members of my team look like, it's going to be very, very salient in my mind. So you end up with a Republican Party where most of the members of the party have very good fit. They all look like what Republicans look like. They worship like Republicans worship. What that means is that those three C's, the needs for comprehension, control, and community, those are going to be so shaped by not just like general considerations that may change from time to time, but very shaped by this sort of uniformity of social identity on the right. So the way that Democrats and Republicans comprehend the world, totally different. The way that they seek to have control over the things that are kind of chaotic, totally different. And the way that they seek to enact and engage with community, totally different. So the description is such that it's more very specific on one end and the other end is much more varied. So- yeah. Yep. What would one say about the perspective that one is more, this is what we are versus the other group is we are not really a specific thing. So it doesn't have as much identity to it. Yeah, well, I think some people might look at that and say that, you know, for, for Democrats where it's more diverse and they're not just about one specific thing, you know, it depends on, whether that's good or bad depends on what your goals are, right? So if your goals are to engage and mobilize that group, well, then the fact that there's a lot of difference is a pain in the ass, right? Because groups that are very easy to mobilize are those that do have a very coherent, homogenous social identity. And we know that when those identities, like among Republicans, if you have a Republican who is white, Christian, rural, and culturally conservative, they are going to be far more emotionally ignited 
by identity threatening information than if you have a Republican who is, you know, white, rural, but um, maybe kind of secular or agnostic and culturally kind of moderate. If you have a Republican whose identities are not in as much alignment, they're not as easily ignited, engaged, mobilized. Um, but so strategically, it's like, okay, well, maybe that's not great for that side. Uh, but in terms of democratic health, it's actually really bad for, for a party to have to have these qualities that are all in alignment along these socio-demographic lines. It's really bad. It creates and facilitates um, dehumanization of the outgroup, right? Because you're like, not only do they believe different things, they look different, they worship differently, they live differently, right? Those things are really dysfunctional for democracy. And when you start to think of your political outgroup as less than human, and you start to think of them as a threat to your way of life, you will tend to not support their inherent democratic rights because you see them as a threat. So, you know, people might think, you know, hypothetically, yes, I support free speech. I support, you know, free, fair elections. But then when you say, should the other side have the right to free speech? Oh, well, no, 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 that's different. If I see them as a threat to my way of life, if I see them as like an identity threat, I will want to curtail those rights. And that's a problem. Do you think that Republicans see Democrats as less than human? Well, it depends. We know from research that for both parties, when, if you have super strong, what's called identity salience, that is that you think of your political identity as a really important part of who you are, right? Like, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm super into MMA or I like to skateboard and they think and talk about it all the time. There are some people for whom that is their political identity, right? They think about their political identity all the time. For those people, they do tend to score higher in dehumanization of the outgroup. Um, and that is true across both. But that, yeah, that is a good question in terms of the asymmetry. I'm not sure about that. Uh, is there something to be said for if there's not as much identity holding on one end, what is the identity there then? It's almost not a group in a way, or is it a group? Well, does it need to be? I mean, it might need to be for political purposes, but in terms of what, you know, the Democratic Party is always called the Big Tent Party, right? That there are these very competing interests and they are, they come together, they create this coalition and then, you know, hopefully, according to party leaders, hopefully they vote this certain way. Um, when you think about what political parties are for, in terms of dem democracy and democratic health, do we really want political parties to be internally uniform? Is that a good thing? Is that going to facilitate the kind of conversations and policy debate that we want? 
Uh, I don't know that the answer to that is necessarily yes, especially when we're talking about not sameness of ideas. We're talking about sameness of like primal characteristics. And when you're talking about sameness of primal characteristics, it taps into our monkey brain, which is not typically as thoughtful or deliberative as our you know, rational central processing mind. Do you feel like there is um, a, like a validity to the constitution and like how America was founded? Like, do you think that your book plays into supporting the constitution or do you think it, do you think there's something wrong with the, where America was founded? Um, I don't, I don't think that the book, the, in terms of my non-negotiables, when I, when I talk about solutions to this identity driven wrongness, you know, my sense is that America, we are a pluralistic liberal democracy, right? Like that is where we are. And that is the vision that has to be realized. And so obviously we know that there are problems at the founding, right? Like you and I wouldn't be allowed to vote, Rebecca, you know, um, or own land or whatever. So sure, there were issues at the founding, but I, I am an institutionalist. I trust in our institutions and I trust in the sort of the vision of our institutions in terms of where they can get us. Um, so obviously there were flaws, but in terms of the system itself, notice that the system itself has been designed in ways that are self-correcting, right? The, the constitution and the way that these processes operate have allowed us the possibility of improving and expanding democratic rights and expanding democratic health. Um, I think that not a lot of systems would necessarily have withstood the test of time because they didn't allow that flexibility. If you were looking at the two groups, what are some qualities or personality qualities you would give to each end of the spectrum and uh, maybe the benefits of each? Um, so it's not what qualities I would give to them, right? It is what are what do we know about the the psychological traits that we find on the left and the right? Um, first, I'll just say with a caveat that these really are um, these are traits that are correlated with cultural ideology. So not just Republican Democrat and not, you know, ideology related to like taxation or the size of government. It's not that. When you look at liberals and conservatives defined in terms of their views on sexuality, race, immigration, crime, gender, um, that kind of dimension, you do find some significant differences between liberals, cultural liberals, and cultural conservatives in terms of several things. But the, the, the big ones that I think are telling are um, need for cognition, which is sort of enjoyment of thinking and problem solving, and need for closure, which is how kind of the opposite of a tolerance for ambiguity. Need for closure is you you need 
certainty and predictability. You need routine. You need to know how the story ends. You need things wrapped up with a bow. Um, so we know that cultural conservatives tend to need closure more than cultural liberals. Um, and cultural liberals tend to be higher in need for cognition, which doesn't mean they are smarter. It simply means that they are more likely to enjoy thinking for the sake of thinking. Um, so now when we think about where these come from, there are theories about what has what is responsible for the manifestation of these traits. And it seems that it boils down to our, our physiological threat detection systems, our physiological systems and how they are monitoring for interpersonal threat. So some folks see the world as somewhat dangerous, and so they're always on the lookout for potential threats. Um, other folks do not feel that way. They are they kind of are in this luxurious spot where they're not they're not always worried about what's lurking around the corner. Well, it tends to be that the people who are highly monitoring for threat tend to be culturally conservative. They'll tend to have more. Um, harsh views on crime. They will tend to be more, um, they, they tend to oppose immigration. They tend to be more traditional in their values relating to sexuality and gender. So though that correlation is kind of fascinating to me because then on the other side, you have liberals who are kind of like not, they're kind of just like skipping and hopping along, not worried about threat, not really thinking the world is a dangerous place. And when you have that mindset, it actually allows you to make decisions more slowly because you don't feel like somebody could jump out from around the corner at any moment and like, you know, serve as a source of threat. The, whereas cultural conservatives, because of their high threat salience, they make decisions very efficiently. They make decisions often based on intuition and emotion. Um, they don't just think for the sake of thinking, not because they can't, but because they're busy, you know, trying to make sure that they are avoiding threats. So I think about it in terms of the kinds of people who you who you would want to be. Um, in your military, the kinds of people who you would want to be in your armed forces or in your police force, for example, or fighting fires or serving as EMTs. You probably want someone who has that sort of physiological threat detection system that we tend to find among cultural conservatives because they are, they make decisions fast and efficiently. They take action, they're action oriented. Right. They're not going to be like, oh, well, this house is on fire. Let me write a list of the pros and cons of the various courses of action that I might take in response to this house that's burning down. Right. Um, so the what's interesting about my field, which may not come as a surprise, is that a lot of social scientists are very culturally liberal. And I do think that there's been a tendency to frame some of the traits that we find on the right as lesser than, like, oh yes, they're lower in need for cognition, right? They uh, are lower in tolerance for ambiguity. But I think it's essential that we think about the circumstances in which 
those traits are really, really important. And, you know, yeah, if you're a scientist or a faculty member where you have the luxury of just sitting in a faculty meeting and like chewing your cud for hours and hours, yeah, like it might be good to have a high need for cognition. Like that's fine. Um, but there's there are circumstances where you don't want a liberal faculty member to be the one on the front lines making those decisions, right? So, yeah, so that, those are those are some of the things that I developed in my my first book, Irony and Outrage, as well, um, which you should check out. Do you think that the feeling of threat towards conservatives comes from? possibly a strong sense of right and wrong? Yeah, no, that's a good point. So we we know actually that part of that high need for closure and sort of a low tolerance for ambiguity, it's correlated with that sense of like right and wrong, black and white, right? Like like there's a, there is a sense of moral clarity that comes with seeing the world that way. So you're right. Does it leave like a... Does the opposite of that not have as much, if there's a lack of clarity, then is what is right or what is wrong not really defined? So there's more room for this could be right, this could be right, we accept anything, kind of accepting there, everything. Yeah, yeah, so, that, so it, it kind of brings you to this um, area of moral relativism, which, you know, there's a trait that I'm studying now called intellectual humility, which is just being open to the possibility you might be wrong. People who are intellectually humble, they, they have opinions, but they don't tether themselves so tightly to their opinions that they will that they won't be willing to update their beliefs. Um, so I think that yes, there is some there, you know, if you are if you don't have that firm sense of like, oh, black and white, right and wrong, yes, you kind of run the risk of kind of being morally relativistic about everything, but you also have the possibility of, of having the value of intellectual humility where you can see various sides of the story, basically, so to speak. Um, and I think that that we we do ourselves a disservice when we think about these kinds of things as inherently good or bad. I think all of them have their place and all of them can be very useful and functional in different ways. I think that some of them have also been exploited by certain political leaders in ways that aren't, aren't useful, but you know, on their own, all of these traits have contexts where they are positive. One thing that came to mind is in the book, you did describe how your uh, prior husband, who's no longer here, uh, was of a certain viewpoint and your new companion is alternate, like comparing them with the two types. Can you describe that a bit and how that relates to the parties and your view? Yeah. So, um, and this, again, this came out of my work for the first book where there are these sort of two sets of traits that tend to co correlate with cultural ideology. Um, and as I was writing the book, I realized, oh, this is so bizarre because my late husband, Mike, was uh, an improv comic and an artist. And 
he had infinite tolerance for ambiguity and he really he shunned sort of rituals and institutions he was like yeah, just because this is the way it's always been doesn't mean it has to be that way you know he lived in the shades of gray always um and you know a couple of years after he passed away and i met my new husband pj pj is a prosecutor he has a very firm sense of right and wrong he has a very strong sense of like moral seriousness too um he's playful and he's funny but he also has a strong sense of duty and i think about it a lot because you know he he was willing to marry a widow with a baby and not every man would be willing to take on that responsibility um and now both of these men are amazing both of them are wonderful both of them are great partners but they brought very different traits to the relationship that had that were necessary at that moment in time right um so in terms of the way that the the parties work i think you know part part of political psychology is stereotyping which you're not supposed to do but there are like i said you know there are these traits that do correlate with these kinds of underlying factors um i see i don't think that it's an accident let me put it that way that my husband pj is a criminal prosecutor right so he represents the state and he prosecutes people accused of murder. And I think that for him, that is a very natural fit for him because he does come to it with a very firm sense of right and wrong. Um, and it, it is a morally serious task. Now, it also means that he is, he has a strong sense of like of valuing law and order. He has a respect for law enforcement. You know, he felt very frustrated by some of the, the calls to like, you know, defund the police. Or he's like, I don't really understand what that means. What does it mean to defund the police? Um, but, you know, when you think about how he thinks about the world and sort of the traits that govern how he engages with it, kind of, it just makes sense. Um, now, all that being said, my I come away from the study of these traits, not thinking, oh, we're so different and we can never like come together. That does not make sense to me because life is complicated and there are all different contexts that we find ourselves in. Some of them are actually threatening. Some of them are playful and some of them require thinking and reconsideration and studies, right? Like science, science, the practice of science, the, you know, never removing yourself from doubt. Scientists, they just do study after study, not to prove something is right, but to just rule out what's wrong. I think that the more we vilify those folks who have the traits of the other side, the more we do ourselves a disservice because the traits themselves are not 
problematic. The traits themselves are necessary because society is complex and requires all different kinds of people to do all different kinds of things. Um, we live in a political media environment that tends to want to distill everything and frame it as bad. And I think that is, that's problematic. One thing that comes to mind is you had mentioned earlier and also in the book, intuition is uh, included on one side more than the other. Do you have thoughts on intuition or use of intuition that one side might use in relation to do they base their thoughts on intuition or maybe their beliefs, their faith? Mm -hmm. I think that conservatives tend to make their decisions more off their like deeper beliefs rather than their emotions or their intuition. I think it's for the most part, probably like biblically based. And they say, if, if they're studying God's word, they're, they're making their decisions based off of who God is and making God their God. Whereas I think liberals tend to disregard, not saying that no liberals are Christian or not saying that liberals, um, only base their things off of their own thoughts. But I think, I don't think they tend to uh, acknowledge God as much and they don't tend to think that there is consequences for their actions. Um, I don't think they tend to think how their decisions affect people and they tend to um, go towards more like, how does this, uh, how does this benefit them, themselves in whatever that is? Wait, so you think liberals tend to not think about how, how can you give an example of that? Like, um, I just want to understand. So that last part that you said, can you give an example? About liberals? Um, I think like, for instance, like, I mean, there's so many controversial topics when it comes to conservatives versus liberals. And there's a lot of points that are at play, but I guess like my overall point is I just feel like conservatives tend to make their decisions and their beliefs of right and wrong based off of what they believe God says is right or wrong. Whereas liberals tend to make their decisions based off of what they think is, is what they want in life. They don't tend to like ask God what is right and wrong. And that's why there's a lot more gray there. Some folks tend to value their intuition and their instinct. Um, and which actually, in some ways, it might be what you're thinking of as sort of your like underlying values and beliefs, right? Because those are the things that are like inside you that drive you to see the world the way you do. Um, and then there are folks who look to empirical evidence and data to update their beliefs. Now, all of us do both of these all the time. So all of us, we, we would not be well served by never using intuition and emotion. Like that would just be a disaster. We would also never be well served. We would also not be well served by never using evidence or data. Um, but we know that there are some folks who will tend to prioritize one kind of thinking over the other, right? They will tend to um, value intuition and emotion more. And when I say emotion, I don't mean like emotional, right? I mean, 
that they have a feeling about something and that tells them that that probably is tapped into sort of their moral compass and that tells them if something is is good or bad or right or wrong um and then there are folks who tend to really value evidence and data and try to push back against their gut and their intuition and will always be on the search uh, sort of on the lookout searching for new information new evidence and data um and you know it is fair to say that in the united states because the the parties have sorted along these these various lines like we discussed we have folks who value faith intuition and gut that tend to cluster in the Republican Party, right? And we have folks who value evidence and data who tend to cluster in the Democratic Party. I think that the notion that you have not just two parties that look different, but two parties whose way of understanding the world is different, I think that had is dangerous for democracy because you completely will talk past one another, right? Because you won't even have a shared sense of what is the best pathway to truth. I think as you said that, Rebecca, and you said, you know, you see that liberals, um, because they're not really thinking about what would God say is right or wrong. And so their beliefs are based on what would be best for them. Like personally, is that, am I paraphrasing that kind of, right? Right. You're saying that Re- Republicans revere God, but Democrats maybe don't. Is that, that's what well, I said so, at least. But so your comment, when you said that, um, that because liberals aren't coming to their beliefs and attitudes based on what God would want, right? Instead, you said they, they come to their beliefs and attitudes based on what they want. I think that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. And I, I, but I think for the way that liberals would look at it is that the conservatives who put their faith in God and God, and they, they believe that God says that this is the right way to do things, um, that their view would be, well, but that particular, if you are, if you are wedded to what God says is right, then you would not be willing to update your beliefs in the face of new information. And so what you end up having then is this complete disconnect in terms of what's valued, right? Where liberals are like, oh, I know, I think it's actually better to update my beliefs based on new information and conservatives saying, well, I, I actually think it's better to put faith in God and have my beliefs shaped by what we know God would want. Um, and that probably also helps to explain why the beliefs and attitudes on the right may be more stable, right? Like less likely to change. Um, and but whether or not you see that as a good thing or a bad thing even mm-hmm. is probably dependent on what side you're on. Mm-hmm. No? Right. I think that the the things that keep conservatives stable, like those things, like they're not 
they're not necessarily bad things like their deep core values and what they think God is, you know, telling them is right or wrong. And whereas um, liberals, they don't have that sort of like direction and compass. Um, and they think, you know, perhaps like anything goes and they can come up with the rules and they can they can have new information and then uh, go that direction. But the thing is, is that I don't think conservatives aren't willing to look at new information there, but not, but not information that is going to go against the deeper, the deeper values yeah. of um, the sanctity, sanctity of life, or like things that are like, very, uh, very serious. But it doesn't mean like they can are or not open to maybe new discoveries in the world or you know yeah, sure. a new medicine yeah. or new things yeah. but nothing nothing to the level where it's gonna affect what god would say about how they should you know what they should value no that's interesting so there's an area of research that is so fascinating to me um that comes to us from social psychology um moral foundations theory which is the notion that um you know individuals are driven by these different kinds of moral foundations. And we tend to find that the moral foundations that people value are correlated with their political ideology. So the, some of the moral foundations are like um, loyalty, which tends to be valued on the right. Um, sanctity, you, you brought sanctity of life, sanctity, purity, that is something that is valued on the right. Um, on the left, you have um, folks placing value in um, two things. One is the sort of like care versus harm, right? And the other is about sort of equality and fairness. Now, conservatives also value those things too, obviously, but how they're defined is quite different. Uh, the other thing that conservatives value that is does not come up as a moral foundation as much on the left is um, authority. So respect for authority. And that probably also maps onto what we're talking about here, which is who is the ultimate authority? God. Right. So that so if you have that kind of faith system, it creates a natural hierarchy in terms of like who who gets, who's the decider, who gets to decide. And that then serves as a bit of a metaphor for how you think about other aspects of the world and organizations. Um, and so there tend, you tend to find in conservative households, more of a strict father model, which is to go to George Lakoff's book, Moral Politics, where um, his notion is that the microcosm of the family is where we really see some of these differences in ideology. And folks who are more conservative will more conservative will tend to have um, raise their children in a way where, look, you do this because I'm the parent and I'm in charge and I'm here to protect you and I'm here to teach you, right? As opposed to on the left, there is this sort of nurturing parent model, which is where there's more equality perceived between parent and child. So rather than you do this, it's let's have a discussion about how you're feeling about this thing I just asked you to do or whatever. Um, really fascinating work in this space. But but I think that you're right that it does create these very different 
fundamental foundations of morality that, by the way, all these things are correlated, right? Whether you're talking about moral foundations or you're talking about these psychological traits, you're talking about people's views on, you know, sexuality or gender or crime, they're all related, which to me, that's why I love what I study. It's like, that's so fascinating. They're all statistically correlated. Let's figure out what's going on and why that is and whether that's good or bad. That's a wonderful thing. I would like to check in closing, what would be a takeaway that people can absorb from your book wrong that you would want them to leave with in their minds? Um, for me, the, the hardest chapter to write was the final chapter where I, I decide like, okay, how am I going to say we should fix some of the problems in American politics? And um, the solutions that I came up with are at the level of um, journalism, at the level of social media, and at the level of individuals. I'll just give you the ones for individuals because I think that they're the most interesting because regular people can do them. Um, one is trying to be intellectually humble in how you engage with the world. Being The more you are open to the possibility you might be wrong, the more likely it is that you will end up being empirically accurate. So it is openness to our fallibility that allows us to update our beliefs. Um, that's one. Two is what I call reshuffling the deck. So even though you have all these folks who look like the perfect prototype of the Republican Party or who look like the perfect prototype of the Democratic Party, when you get in under the hood of their issue positions, Americans are a lot more complicated than they look. You have a lot of folks who, you know, they, regardless of what the bumper sticker is on their car or what outfit they're wearing and, you know, what truck they're driving, when you actually ask them about the details of public policy, they're not going to be as extreme as you might imagine them to be. And if we allow ourselves to reshuffle the deck, have conversations with folks, even if we think, oh, well, they're wearing that T-shirt in support of that candidate or whatever, so I'm not going to like that person. That, I think, is, I think that's dangerous for us to write people off without engaging off the bat. Number two, you know, that, and this is related, giving the benefit of the doubt, always giving it the benefit of the doubt, that the more we allow ourselves to be wrong, Accept the possibility that people who seem like political opponents might also be good people. People who are political opponents might actually share a lot more in common with us than we would be led to believe by our media environment. Um, and the other piece of reshuffling the deck is being willing to push back against that pressure to perform your political team identity the way that you feel like your team wants you to. So there's a lot of pressure on, I think, both the left and the right to when you're in social media spaces or you're in interpersonal spaces, you want to be a good team member. So if you do hold a view that isn't exactly what everybody on your team believes, you tend to be a little quiet about it, right? Because you're like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want them to be mad at me. I'm going to just be quiet about that piece. 
we owe it to de democratic health and to our own, how we contribute to the information environment. Like we owe it to our fellow humans to be really honest in how we perform our political identity. Like if you do hold a view that isn't what everybody on the democratic side believes, say that, be honest about it complicate the space, disrupt the space. And that will help reduce this sort of bifurcation that we have. Um, it'll probably end up helping us have a, a lot more realistic understanding of how actual Americans think. That's a great message. It's good to challenge one another and uh, connect in that way as well. Professor Young, I would like to thank you for having joined on this discussion regarding material related to your study and also your book, Wrong, which comes out October 17th, which is near when this will come out. And also my co-host, Rebecca, glad to have you on here. Glad for both of you today. Thank you so much. And we are out. The Armin Show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades. A lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Army Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment, information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it. And onward we go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had, and we'll see you on The Armin Show next time.